Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we are talking about breathing new life into investigative journalism, one of the most expensive, but also most important, forms of journalism. Few know this better than Rosina Breen, the editor-in-chief of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, a non-profit independent organisation that was set up to hold power to account. She's been in the role for nearly a year now after more than a decade in various senior roles at the BBC. Today we look back at the forces which seek to dismantle investigative reporting, including the ongoing and high-profile legal battle that seeks to sue the publication into silence. Coming up, we also chat about the new formats of the publication and inspiring the next generation of news leaders. Don't go anywhere. Rosina, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. Rosina, many of our audiences will know you as the editor-in-chief of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Maybe what they don't know about you is a very fascinating uni gig that you had uh, back in the day. Would you tell us more about it? As a poor student back in the day, my summer jobs would sort of vary between hotel receptionists, this and that, uh, until one day I was flicking through the um, jobs page in The Guardian and saw um, an advert looking for Wimbledon drivers. So um, drivers who would ferry around players, their agents, families, officials during um, the summer tournament and um, just felt it was something that would um, be an amazing experience. So applied, did the knowledge test, um, uh, scraped through and um, spent three wonderful summers getting to know Wimbledon, the ins and outs of um, including um, talent, um, off-court talent uh, and just learning the roads of uh, South London mostly. Any interesting guests that that got in the back of your cab? I had a few interesting um uh, sort of low-seeded players in the car. I had um, John McEnroe's then wife Tatum O'Neill and her kids in the back of the car. Um, I also had a, a vehicular collision with Boris Becker. It was his fault, not mine, I'm pleased to say, but I did have to get out of my car and um, take down his details, which um, was quite amusing uh, at the time. So um, yeah, lots of them. Um, learning um, on the job and also a great introduction actually to the world of of tennis because we got to watch um, uh, unlimited tennis when we weren't on duty. Would have made a good story that, of course. These days, of course, you're the editor-in-chief of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism coming up to one year in the post. Uh, Many congratulations on that. Um, When you took to the the role um, last year, you kind of said at that moment in time you saw a lot of potential in the in the bureau to to grow. So my question to you is, um, how's it been going? It's been um, enlivening, thrilling, challenging, stretching, um, enabling so many different things all in one. Um, I was going to say neat little bundle, but a sort of messy package, really. But I was drawn to the role of the bureau for a number of reasons. Um, The first was its fierce determination for um, deep public interest investigations. And I had come from a background in daily news, um, which first started actually as head of news at Five Live. And I started that role during the week of the EU referendum. And we 
you know, had a sort of never ending, angry daily news agenda. Um, I definitely from that point onwards. And I was really interested and invested in the idea of deep investigations that would really interrogate what was going on at a deeper level, uh, and especially drawn by the Bureau's sort of specialisms around the environment, um, big tech, global health, as well as um, enablers, which looks at corruption and the flow of dirty money through London, and also the ambitions and innovation of the Bureau local team, and also joined on the back of um, a sort of phenomenal leader in Rachel Aldroyd, who had grown the Bureau um, significantly. And I felt drawn to it because of the talent at the Bureau, the culture of a startup, and also the need for the investigations. I felt that we could grow in the field of audio. Um, Previous to the Five Live job, I had launched um, a digital hub for the BBC World Service. So I came with sort of digital knowledge and a belief and vision that we could grow our digital footprint and reach um, even more global audiences. And I suppose with a passion for innovation and creativity and a history of reaching underserved audiences. And I saw that our investigations could go wider in terms of who we were reaching and um, uh, who was accessing our investigations. Right. And thinking there about diversifying your audience for a moment, I mean, when we think about investigative journalism, it's easy to our minds to go to, and we will talk about this investigating like the rich and powerful and that that kind of elite world. But the truth is a lot of investigative journalism impacts the ordinary reader. So is that kind of who you had in mind? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a big um, advocate and fan of um, democratising news, not just who's telling it, who's commissioning, but also who's receiving it. And, um, you know, if I think about some of our recent investigations around labour rights of migrants or the labour rights of um, big tech workers or um, disability um, building grants um, or indeed uh, thinking about our environment team. So a recent story or investigation that we published was into a certain brand of collagen, tracking that back to uh, the Amazon or even thinking about Bureau local teams' new pilot into community-led journalism, which is looking at how we can equip communities, work alongside them to identify investigations, to news gather and to tell the story in a different way using their lens and, and their voices. So another example is we have a climate finance Um, reporter Joe Moult, who does um, amazing work on um, issues like greenwashing. Now, you know, um, if you're a young person, middle-aged or older, um, you have a bank, you want to know that um, or hold your bank accountable on their green pledges. So I think a lot of our work um, is accessible or can be increasingly accessible to to all audiences. Mm, Super. Any surprises, any stories that maybe did well that you didn't expect or things that came up that you didn't anticipate? You know, any curveballs, any surprises? The the, the surprises are, and the joys, I suppose, include some of our new formats. And these are new formats to um, the Bureau. Um, so, for example, launching on TikTok a, 
a few months ago. Now there was, um, you know, you wouldn't expect to um, necessarily see brilliantly clever explainers from a range of journalists on on TikTok, but um, they do them and they do them brilliantly um, in their own character with great deep expertise. And there has been a real, I think, um, embracing of that and also allowing great talent to be able to sort of command the field. So, you know, a recent hire of ours, Kat Pernak, has really sort of pushed on on TikTok in a way that she knows it, understands it, is able to um, sort of nuance it. So I think the great surprise and joy has been how... Um, adaptable the team wants to be in terms of the new formats. What I take so far is that there's still a significant appetite for investigative journalism that speaks to ordinary people. However, the field must move with the times to stay relevant and appealing. The Bureau's pivot to TikTok is a good example of this. Boot up your app and search for the handle at the Bureau Investigates and you will see clear and concise content repackaging some of their investigations into vertical video explainers. One of the videos also explains slaps to their audience, strategic lawsuits against public participation. It's a tactic used by the ultra-rich to sue news organisations into silence. The reason why it's relevant is because last year the Bureau was involved in a high-profile case against a former Kazakh president and it's still battling to throw the case out of court. Rosina tells us the story. We ran a story in February last year about um, billions of Kazakh money passing through London. Um, three months later and out of the blue, and it was in fact day three into um, my start at the Bureau, we had what's called a letter before action. So that's when a law firm essentially puts you on notice that you're about to be sued. It's more serious than just a threatening letter. On average, we probably get one threatening letter a week at the Bureau. Um, and the law firm was Boys, Schiller, Flexner, and we took their letter seriously. Um, the letter before action was on behalf of the Nazarbaya Fund, um, which was set up by the ex-dictator of Kazakhstan, uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev and uh, an associated company called Juzan Technologies. Um, months later, a claim against us was formally commenced at the High Court by Juzan. And obviously, I can't go into the details of the story or the legal claim, but 20 human rights and freedom of speech groups have condemned this as a slap. Um, and a slap is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Essentially, it's a legal action, usually from the rich and powerful designed to stop investigations into them by tying up journalists in years of expensive legal action. And it doesn't matter whether the slap uh, uh, wins or loses the case. Um, in the meantime, it intimidates other journalists from covering the story. Um, MPs of all parties have pledged to change the law and to stop this happening. And the government has said it's one of their priorities. Um and I should add that Open Democracy, which is um, another non-profit newsroom, and The Telegraph are also being sued by the company over similar reporting. Um, so the case will have already cost hundreds of thousands of pounds on all sides, um, and we haven't yet had the opportunity to put in our full defence. 
but we are all in court next month for a preliminary hearing on some of the legal issues, which we hope will bring an end to the claim. Um, If not, and it goes to full trial, the cost could be millions. And if you have the money, you can paralyse journalists and stop them reporting on what you're up to. Um, And that's how difficult libel laws are and why we're determined not just to get the Kazakh case thrown out, but also to reform the libel laws so that slaps are essentially consigned to history. Mm, Right. Okay. I know there's only so much you can say about that. So one important element of this is you were able to crowdfund some money to help fight this case as well. And you you did meet that £40,000 publicly. Does that kind of, to you, show the public appetite for the kind of work that you do? I think for that crowdfund, we had over 1,100 donations in a pretty short space of time. And um, our target in the end was £40,000 and we crowdfunded with Open Democracy. And, um, you know, we had a, a handful of larger donations, but mostly they were, you know, sort of five, £10 donations. And... um. It was uh, gratifying and humbling to see that people would um, reach into their pocket um, during hard times and donate. And it, I think, helped us and me understand the uh, value that audiences or communities or people mm see in public interest journalism and public interest investigations that they value the work that we do that they are wanting a fair and just society that they um want us to sort of um expose injustice um and that they are highly supportive of um the reporting that we do so it it kind of makes me even more determined that we, um, you know, diversify what we do, that we continue bold and courageous journalism um, and that we do what we um, truly believe is in the public interest. Just a quick one from me and then we'll get back to the chat with Rosina. Come and stretch your legs, meet your peers and hear expert panel discussions at our upcoming News Wired Digital Journalism Conference on the 23rd of May 2023 at News UK in London. Grab your ticket now on newswired.com and we will see you there. It's obviously not uh, an ideal system for funding investigative journalism. We would hope that the ideal solution would be that, you know, uh, the, the business model would support itself. Of course, investigative journalism is incredibly expensive. There are you know, legal costs that come alongside it. So kind of where I'm going with this is, what is the right model for funding investigative journalism right now? And what's kind of the approach that you're taking? I don't think there is necessarily a silver bullet answer to what the right model is. Um, for the Bureau, we're looking to diversify our revenue model. So um, we're aiming to launch a membership programme at the end of This year, we're looking at opportunities through things like audio. We're looking at supercharging our sort of online donations and and one-off campaigns. So I think there are a a number of ways to do it. 
I do think there needs to be a sort of better, more systemic approach to um, funding independent newsrooms, whether that's in the field of investigations or whether that's around hyper-locals, places like, um, you know, the Manchester Mill and Bristol Cable are doing um, terrific work in that field. And I think kind of fundraising and revenue generation is really difficult in the non-profit world, sort of naturally, because the funding landscape shifts. It's a bit like sort of tectonic plates that periodically um, move and, and you adapt. Explain it for our audiences, if you would, how it works for the, the non-profit. You still have to obviously generate the revenue and you have to sort of meet your own uh, operational costs. If, if, if you meet that and there's still some left over, then what happens? So everything that we generate goes into our journalism or our organisational costs. So that could be things like overheads um, uh, and core roles. So that could be, you know, roles in um, operations, finance and so on. Um, So we receive the majority of our funding through foundations. And um, uh, on the back of that, we are designed to cover five verticals so essentially our verticals are sort of themes or topic areas so those um you know cover the environment globally um global health big tech enablers which is the flow of dirty money through london and um our bureau local team so whatever funding we generate um goes into our investigations um And for example, if, um, you know, or whenever we get um, one-off donations or recurring donations or people love our newsletter and sign up to our newsletter and want to become regular donors, all that money comes into essentially our journalism. We don't spend, we don't have shareholders. um, We don't um, run anything in a commercial entity at the Bureau. So we don't kind of run run a profit and any surplus, we would think about story generation or um, innovative formats, or or uh, doing some interesting work in a in a new location. Mm. Does it make it easier, in some sense, to innovate? I mean, you spoke earlier on about you know TikTok. Often, some of the hesitation for going on is, you know, how does this help the business? Quite frankly, it, when you take that kind of away from the equation, does it make it easier to pivot to to innovate and experiment? Yeah, I mean, I think what I really love about the Bureau and, you know, I've come from a sort of number of decades at at the BBC where I would sort of say similar, where you have a team with almost a startup mentality is a really powerful thing because, you know, whilst we don't have the benefits of a large organisation, i.e. infrastructure or necessarily a set funding agreement for a certain number of years um we have a sort of ambition and agility that could and should take us to new ideas um and new ways of doing things so for example we were lucky enough to secure some google news initiative money and we've pivoted that this year into piloting a community-led investigations model um and um, that's led by an amazing woman, Rachel Hamada, who... Um, we had her on the podcast not, not too long ago. Oh, great. Uh, you know well then. Um, so she um, is leading that pilot for us. But um, 
I think we, with our connection of networks of networks and our approach to local journalism and our deep interest in communities and working alongside them, um, felt it was a sort of a natural follow on from another of the Bureau's sort of um, incubations, the People's Newsroom Initiative, which was led by another amazing woman, uh, Megan Lucero. It was a natural progression into what could we do that could generate a model for working alongside communities that would deliver a type of investigation that was um, authentic, came from the deep heart of communities, um, was sort of um, commissioned and news gathered and told in a different way. Now, I suppose it there were elements of creative risk in that in that pilot. It some elements definitely won't work and some elements will being a sort of non-profit startup and having essentially key aims with that and knowing that those aims are different from some of the other legacy newsrooms gives us the creative space and freedom to be able to trial and error Uh, and I'm excited to sort of see what what the investigations look and feel like and what model we can come up with by the end of the year that potentially are scalable globally. Rosina has name-dropped plenty of amazing women so far, like the previous editor-in-chief Rachel Oldroyd and the community organiser Rachel Hamada. But on a broader level, this is not an exception to the rule. An increasing number of the biggest news organisations now have women editors, like Catherine Viner at The Guardian, Alison Phillips at The Mirror, Alessandra Galoni at The Reuters, Joe Editunji at The Conversation, Emma Tucker at The Wall Street Journal, or Victoria Newton at The Sun. It's too early to say this is a trend, according to Rosina, but it is an encouraging sign that diversity is improving in journalism, and that also helps the business, though only if it's inspiring more women journalists to enter the profession and work their way up the ladder. I suppose the real test is, you know, looking at who is coming in and moving up um, as a result of your tenureship or as a result of other people thinking, oh, well, I can see somebody like Rosina doing that. Um, You know, it makes me feel that I can do that too. Because if I'd have said to my sort of 20 something year old self, um, you know, where I would be at, at this stage of my career, I probably wouldn't have believed it. So you sort of need to see it to believe it, but also you need to know that they need to know it's possible, right? I mean, that, that 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 ladder can be climbed and they can reach that position just like other women have. Yeah, I mean, I I would say so. I mean, my, I sort of grew up in a single-parent working-class um, home on free school meals um, in North London. So I didn't sort of come from a position at all of, um, of privilege or networks. Um, I, you know, had determination. I was lucky enough to have great bosses who saw good potential in me and encouraged me to go for positions um you know a number of senior positions I ended up in I was asked if I would go for them and I hadn't really I had factored myself out I had discounted myself from going for those so I think sometimes having the a sort of belief and acknowledgement of peers or other leaders is um, really significant. And to my mind, that's what I'm here to do for other underrepresented talent in the sector is to help them achieve 
their potential, give them my time, hopefully give them opportunities and encourage them to go for things because, um, you know, self-belief isn't a sort of natural gift for many people and often having the belief and encouragement of other people can really spur you on. So I think the test is in, as a result of our generation of female leaders, is what does the next generation of talent look like and where is it reflected in the data? Yeah, it sounds like what you described there is imposter syndrome, Rosina. Um, I don't, I think I'm, I'm probably too old now to see it in that term. And now I'm just, you know, one of those older, angry people, <laughs> you know, just sort of tells it as it is. And I don't really care too much about if people understand it. Well, let me turn that, let me turn that into a question then for maybe you know, a woman listening to this podcast right now who is a journalist and wants to climb the ranks in their newsroom, what would your message be to them, you know, who might be feeling similar to how you did back then? I would say understand and work on your superpowers. And I tend to use the word superpower quite a lot into people that I talk to and to the sort of great talent in our newsroom is that people don't really see their own superpowers. They see it in other people or people that they really admire and yet everybody has a superpower and it's the difference that you bring to an organization or it's a lived experience that you bring to an organization or it's your determination I I think anybody listening to this podcast whether you're a woman whether you're working class um, whether you're you're black ethnic minority um, LGBTQ plus I think there is always a place for you at the table always a place for you at the table and never let anybody tell you that there isn't and if you feel that um that is the way in your organization or somebody is telling you that then they don't deserve to have you in their organization so you have to find the place that that does um accept you for who you are what you bring your talents and that you do have great talent so I think a lot of um self-endorsement but not always always questioning the kind of negative feedback or criticism that you may get is not always about you it's usually about the other person or the organization you're in right and people in those positions also need to feel quite fulfilled in those roles in order to to stay in them if we are to retain that talent um generally what do you think uh, is needed for women or women of color to feel fulfilled in those positions that's a big question really because i've seen um for example, an old colleague, Fatima Soleria, who is up until recently um, MD of Naked Productions, wrote a very honest blog about burnout. And I don't think that is sort of distinctive to her necessarily or or women or women of colour. I think there is a kind of um, real leadership pressure at the moment and issues around burnout. But I do think actually you can feel compounded by otherness. And by that, I mean, you know, when you join an organisation at a junior level, you can feel othered because of your thinking or your approach. When you get into middle management, you can sort of feel the same. And then when you become a leader, you can also feel the same because uh, as a leader, you're not, you're sort of part of the team and yet you're not part of the team. There is a sort of um, an appropriate distance or boundaries that you have to naturally put into place and so your experience of 
being othered because of your colour or gender or are compounded because you're also othered because you're a leader in the business. And I don't think it's really a conscious thing that people do. And maybe it's a sort of self uh, otherment that you sort of self-impose in order to sort of maintain um, composure. It sort of adds to the pressure. And, you know, I've heard people talk about not wanting to fail because if you fail people will say it's because you're a woman or because you're brown or uh, because you're an older woman so there is a lot of pressure to get things right and in terms of um, sustaining I think it's absolutely about um, you know where you get your affirmations from um, great self-care so personally I enjoy well I don't always enjoy but I you know I go running you know I'm a mom of three young adults uh, I have a good network of friends and also sort of modeling that in the newsroom so for example in a couple of weeks time we have a kind of mental health well-being week at the bureau where everybody will have that time off to to focus on the things that bring them joy and to have a bit of respite from what is a very difficult world sometimes. Mm. Do you personally feel the weight of that responsibility in setting the right example, modelling down the right behaviour, you know, setting the right boundaries with work, helping with integration, all of that kind of stuff? Is that stuff that you feel that responsibility with? I feel the responsibility, but it's um, open-armed. I mean, it's back to if I think about my history in my career history in the sector, I feel privileged and lucky to have had all the amazing jobs that I've had um, at the BBC, at the Bureau, and to have really benefited from that and felt and feel sort of deep joy and purpose in my in my day job. It's, um, you know, work means means a lot to me I think sometimes my family would say too much but you know I I'm somebody who is really driven and passionate about what I do and if I think about some of the barriers that I've experienced and those around me have experienced and a great culture matters you know you want to be in a workplace where you feel valued listened to emboldened enlivened stretched and and challenged but mostly a place that where you love working and um where you feel joy and happiness and again that probably sounds a bit trite but those places exist and um you know leaders can kind of make or break um a culture essentially so I think it's a responsibility that I I take great care over and hopefully, um, you know, I'm not too bad now at taking feedback and so it's less about my ego and more about where people feel listened to. I don't want to look back and think, oh, I, had, I did it easy or I, I couldn't be bothered to make that difference or bring those people up you know there's a phrase about don't pull the ladder up behind you bring people up the ladder and that's absolutely what drives me so it's a it it's a joy rather than a burden of responsibility lift as you climb isn't it isn't that the saying something like that lift as you climb that's the one there you go you're you should be in my job <laughs> no i shouldn't no, nobody needs that um but no um sounds like great uh, great stuff ahead for the ne- for the next 12 months indeed um 
what's next for you? What's on your radar in the immediate near-term future? Oh, we're doing um, quite a lot of work around our audio strategy, so I should probably shout out to uh, Frankie Goodway and um, Oliver Kemp, who are leading our audio strategy for us. So I think those are the areas that I'm really excited about our sort of continued work in all the fields that we're operating in and also um, some of the potential partnership conversations we're having. I mean, I think there is a great um, opportunity in partnership working. So um, lots to be going at and to sort of keep busy with. And, um, you know, maybe if you have me back in a year's time, I'll be able to tell you about all the great things that we've achieved. I'll be sure to email you then. Rosina, thank you ever so much for all of your time today. Uh, It's been a real blast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Lift as you climb. That's a good takeaway for today. Empowering diverse journalists to get into senior positions also brings new ways of thinking and innovative approaches. That is needed in fields like investigative journalism, which remains ever important to ordinary readers, but needs to update its practices to stay accessible. I'd love to get your thoughts on today's discussion. Find me on Twitter at JPG Journalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that is all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.